You're listening to a Sunday service podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We're a faith community committed to racial justice, a place where we practice a deep and authentic welcome, where we listen deeply to where love is calling us next, and a place where with humility, courage, and compassion, we act for justice in the world. To learn more, please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. Well, good morning. I want to welcome the children and youth and adults who are with us. I want to welcome everyone who's joining us from living rooms and couches and kitchen tables and maybe even a bed if you're just chilling out with a cup of coffee and put the paper down and have joined us for worship. Whether you're from Minneapolis or St. Paul or around the state or the country, we're really glad you're with us this morning. I also want to do a shout out to our furry friends that are watching with us. I know in this time of sheltering in place and uh, being home more often, those, those furry friends mean a lot. So welcome all you dogs. Who's a good dog? You're a good dog. And meow to our cat lovers out there. Hey, you got to have a little fun with this crazy time we're in. For over 160 years, in the universalist spirit of love and hope, we have been the people that have practiced giving and receiving and growing together. We are the people who welcome and affirm and protect the light in each human heart, who listen deeply to where love is calling us next, and who with humility, courage, and compassion act to create a more just world. We do all of these things as a faith community committed to racial justice. This is the life that we invite you into, and these are the practices that anchor us as a faith community. We are living in a time, and will continue to live in a time, when church has left the building. And this reality reminds us that church has never really been about a building, though there is something about that physical togetherness that matters, but ultimately church is not about a building. It is about a community that gathers to remember its core values and aspirations, a community that comes to, together to journey together through life, through the hardships, through the justice making, through the grieving that is a part of life. And it is a community that comes together to care for one another and for those around us. And so in remarkably new ways in this time, we are experiencing church in our homes, in our living rooms, in our in the streets, in the communities we are a part of, and we are experiencing it right here in this virtual space made sacred by our presence. So welcome. It's great to be with you this morning. And what is also true, and I think we just need to hold this close to our hearts as well, is that these are hard, hard times we are living in. And if this time is particularly hard for you, if you are struggling to, to buy groceries or basic necessities, or if you are struggling with a rent payment or a mortgage payment or a medical bill or anything else, if you're struggling emotionally or spiritually or, or living with mental illness and really struggling with depression or whatever it might be, this time probably feels overwhelming. And we are here for you and we are here for one another. Every single week we receive requests for support, financial support from the church, spiritual support from the church, from members and friends who are part of our community. Asking for support might feel vulnerable and kind of countercultural, a culture that wants us to have it together and pretend we don't have needs or, or real stresses in our lives. But asking for support and being vulnerable helps create the kind of culture that we want 
be in. It helps create the world that we want to live in, where we can actually care for one another and support one another. And so if you are struggling, please reach out to me, reach out to Reverend Karen or anyone on staff so that we can hold that struggle with you and share that burden with you. And if you're looking for deeper involvement in our faith community, there are a number of ways you can connect with us. If you're not yet receiving our weekly electronic newsletter, The Liberal, you can go online to sign up for that, and then you'll find out all kinds of opportunities during the week for other involvement and engagement and connection and fellowship. You're welcome to join us on Wednesday at 7 p.m. for our half-hour worship service, this midweek service, a time to recharge and center and kind of find a little bit of balance in the middle of the week. And next Sunday, uh, you're invited to join our first step class. It's a short 45 hour long um, class that's on Zoom and it's designed for anyone who's interested in learning more about the church and being connected to what's happening here. So in this first step class, we're offering it next Sunday after the service, you'll have a chance to introduce yourself, meet some other folks, share a bit about your faith journey and what brought you here and then learn about the church and ways to be involved. And so now I invite you to take a deep breath, just to come into your body and into this space to feel the presence of several hundred other people sharing this moment and this time with you. I remember that one of the last things as I graduated college, I was the only black student in, in the art school at uh, this state university. The chair of the department said to me, do you want to be part of the black art world or the white art world? Now, all four years, nobody had said anything that there were two, you know, and I'm like, what does that mean? I worked at the Museum of Natural History out of college, and I also worked at the Metropolitan. And eventually I began to have ideas about these environments. Some of them house the same cultures. If you look at Africa, Asia, and uh, native objects, they both have these collections, but how they display them, what they say about them, the environment that they're placed in is very different. And to me, this was fascinating because it just showed in high relief how the museum creates meaning uh, according to what they want you to know. But then there's these other parts of that meaning that they are not wholly in control of what is being received and who's receiving it and what does it do to the artists who made these particular objects. As a person of color, even more so, this is laid onto you by other people. And essentially at that time, it was just, you know, white Americans creating the meaning. There are a lot of things in the world as well, not just in the museum, that for the most part, they're not being examined. Very banal things like a coffee cup or any kind of advertising or object they're not being examined because we're going about our daily lives and, and doing our thing, and, and, and we don't have the time to examine every little thing. When I slow down, I begin to muse on what are these things really about, what are their particular histories, and I think things have shifted in, in the museum world. I don't think they, museum people uh, were trying not to include us in, in the conversation, it was, they just didn't realize they weren't including us in the conversation. When I first got to do a project with the museum, it, it affected museum professionals really strongly because I was using their language in a way that they never would use. I was, because I had worked in museums, I understood the didactic. I understood 
display in a way that they themselves could not. Like newspapers, if you're aware that there are various perspectives, even within the fact that they are giving you their full scholarship and their, their, you know, their full knowledge, then you don't have to pick apart the institution. You're just aware that they're going to have a different point of view and you can understand your perspective in relation to that. So I just say don't ignore that, but still enjoy the exhibition in the museum. I really appreciate how Fred Wilson deconstructs what a museum is. And I love how by curating uh, a space, an exhibit in a new way, he reveals how consciously or, or unwittingly museums reinforce racist beliefs or cultural stereotypes or um, behaviors. As an artist, he flips the script. So we see everything anew with fresh eyes. And this next piece of music you will hear, it does that same kind of thing, but it does it musically. It takes something we know, we know very well, and cracks it wide open so we experience it in a new and surprising and provocative way. My friend Abby wrote an upside down version of the Star Spangled Banner. So the melody goes like this in the original. <laughs> In her version, anything that goes up goes down. So instead of it would sound uh, something like so together it would go a beautiful way to make a statement using music theory. I was in the basement of the Maryland Historical Society with the artist you viewed on the video today, Fred Wilson. I was an exhibit developer at the Field Museum of Natural History of Chicago, where I was working on a major exhibition about Africa and the African diaspora. 
I had come to Baltimore to consult with Fred because he was a great visual storyteller. He was developing an exhibit from the artifacts in the Historical Society's collection. We roamed the temperature controlled rooms and alcoves with our special gloves and we picked up silver pictures from the 1800s and an endless number of obscure paintings that depicted wealthy Maryland farmers of the 18th and 19th century. We also found a section of the collection where the objects were labeled not for public viewing, not for display. And on these shelves and in these bins were iron shackles, KKK hoods, whites only signs, and dehumanizing images of black women, men, and children. A smile filled Fred's face as he picked up the shackles used to enslave our relatives. He brought the shackles over to the ornate silver pictures and placed them next to each other, not touching, but close by. And he said, this is it. And from the juxtaposition of these objects that he later called metalwork, a major exhibit was being conceived that was about to challenge the museum world. When Fred found a whipping post, it ended up becoming the centerpiece for the most dramatic and visually arresting portion of the entire exhibition. This century old instrument of punishment and torture designed for enslaved Africans was tucked away among a number of antique cabinets. This incongruous storage arrangement provided us with hysterics, but also with Fred with his ironic title for the installation, Cabinet Making, 1820 to 1960. Arranging antique Victorian chairs dating from 1820 to 1896 around the whipping post caused a stir. With these few objects, no labels, no historical video supplementing and explaining the chair and the whipping post, just these objects, Fred showed us the true nature of American hypocrisy. One of the ways Wilson made the invisible visible was by rewriting the tags of the museum's paintings and changing the lighting to redirect viewers' attention. Further, in a series of talking paintings, Wilson gave black child slaves voices by playing recordings such as, with such questions as, who calms me when I'm afraid? Who washes my back? Am I your friend? Am I your brother? Am I your pet? By altering the lighting and focusing the image of the child slave in the photograph, in the painting, and adding this audio, he drew attention to people and groups who were historically have had no voice and that were invisible and mute. Now, the museum can be kind of like a kind parent. You know, it ushers us into these, to the edge of the exhibit and puts us in these sort of rarefied moments. It's really an amazing moment when you go into a museum as a child. Think back to the time you first went into a museum. Just think about it for a second. What museum was it? What did you see? What did your parents say as they guided you along the rails. Do you have an image? 
is it holding you? Now, this kind parent that's coming, ushering us along the edge of the exhibit rails is moving us towards moments of wonder and awe, insight and revelation. But the museum can also be a parent that critiques, jerking us back from the diorama to say, now, wait a minute, or repossessing the very same experience of wonder with a nuanced eye for the story that is missing from the labels. Now, in the early 1990s, I was part of a very rarefied world of black thinkers, along with Fred Wilson, Faith Ruffins, Amina Dickerson, Lonnie Bunch, who is now the head of the Smithsonian. We were a new group of black museum professionals, artists, exhibit developers, historians, and curators who were interrogating the country's major museums to tell new stories about human beings, the cultures they created, and the legacy they left us. Now, much of our work led to congressional legislation that forced museums to deaccession material culture of Native Americans in the mid-90s and return them to their original owners. Our work also led to the creation of the African American Museum that is now in the Washington Mall. That was years in the making, and much of the agitation came from Black museum professionals. Our hope was to engage visitors in understanding a new, a new history, a new history through multiple lenses, and to repent also for the theft and destruction of cultural remains of indigenous people throughout the world. I am reminded of that time in the 90s during these past few weeks and months, as we have been asked as a country to look critically at the symbols, monuments, and exhibits that populate our public spaces. This re-examination of public placement and messaging, this historical criticism, this identification of statue names, this reckoning with their stories is movement work. It is the work that had been building for years. Prior to getting ropes and pulling down these statues, we used to gather in Columbus Circle in New York City on that holiday to make speeches and claim the wrongful inhumane treatment of indigenous people. Prior to Teddy Roosevelt's triumphant horse being removed from the entrance of the American Museum of Natural History, black and native artists had staged performance art every year that deconstructed the posture and messaging of that massive museum entrance sculpture. And to consider why was this sculpture at the entrance of the museum. The packing of sculptures that debase black bodies, the leveling of monuments that honor the rape of women, the removal of symbols of sedition and betrayal, the closing of these crates does not mean that the behavior that these images, names, and stories propagated ceases to be operative in our psyche. It simply means they are not as prominently displayed with aggrandizement and honor. They may go into the basement of a museum, but they are not gone. I remember my Nana taking me to a colored section of a movie when I was very, very, very young, very early 60s. It was the balcony, and I thought it was cool to be up there, as did the rest of us kids. 
but the adults look glum and irritated up there. Eventually, the signs did come down and we could sit wherever we wanted, but we still gravitated to the balcony. In the mid-70s, they stopped advertising employment for men and women in separate help-wanted sections of the newspaper. But the women still weren't hired as mechanics or bus drivers. They took down the Christian crosses that religious people were allowed to hammer over the gay bars in towns across this country to wash away their sins as they came into the gay bar. But every year, trans people are still murdered. As Unitarian Universalists, our history is often framed in the stories of famous individuals. And we have lots of memorials and monuments and statues to these people, particularly in New England. Many that need to be interrogated. We know from our Unitarian, Unitarian history that many Unitarians sought to end slavery and some sought to continue it. Theodore Parker hid and defended fugitive slaves, financed slave insurrections, and delivered fiery and anti-slavery sermons. Yet most Boston Unitarians supported the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 and supported the continuation of slavery because of the wealth it provided for their industries. Do we take their monuments out of Copley Square? Do we take them out of Harvard Square? A few weeks ago, our pastoral care team had a visit with pastoral care team and a minister from Thomas Jefferson Memorial Church in Charlottesville, Virginia. They reached out to us to see how we were doing and to share their learnings from three years ago from having their city be at the center of international attention when the Unite the Right rally came to their city to ostensibly protect Confederate statues. It was an extraordinary gesture by that church and their minister, and we had a tremendous conversation. And we have some new friends who are encouraging us to think about what things might be like three years from now here in Minneapolis after the George War made a murder. Towards the end of our visit, Reverend Alex McGee described a member of her church who three years ago was resistant to change. He was a Unitarian, like many in the South, who still held on to the culture of the Confederacy as his heritage. He may have participated in reenactments of the Civil War. He may have had a Confederate flag at some time on the wall of his den. He may have said things. He may have done things. He's one of us. He's a Unitarian Universalist. After the Unite the Right rally, this congregant started attending meetings and discussion groups and consciousness raising activities. He started reading and reflecting, like many of us are in our congregation as well. The minister took note of this and wanted to know what was different for him and how he was making meaning of this dive he had taken deeply into the topics that he would have rather avoided a few years ago. He said that sometime he has a Confederate museum in his mind. He roams the exhibits and the rooms and then decides to wander out of them into new places with different exhibits. His reflection 
inspired this sermon today. I couldn't let it go. It was an amazing metaphor. So friends, think about it. Each of us may have a museum in our mind, dioramas that explain hominid development, labels that categorize cultures, images that are emblazoned on our memory of the Venus Hottentide, all supported by our monthly digestion of those old time National Geographics that depicted the Yanomani of the Amazon as voyeuristic treasures to behold. Our history as you use is also a museum of rooms that may need a little dusting and rearranging like Fred Wilson did when he positioned six cigar store Indian statues with their backs facing the visitors as they looked upon photographs of their descendants on reservations today. Friends, I have a charge for you as a person of faith, a person who values questions, a person who is curious, a person who is willing to change their mind. My charge to you is to ask yourself, what is in my museum collection? How did I acquire these artifacts and timelines? What is being suggested in the labels that explain the context of these objects? As you tour through your mind's museum and monuments and statues continues, where do you stop to pay close attention? Now, you finished the tour. Now I'm gonna ask you friends to do an evaluation. We museum people love evaluation. So I want you to fill out an evaluation and ask yourself, what statues need to be pulled down because they no longer serve you as the person you are becoming or have become? Which personal monuments need to be interrogated deeply? What objects are stereotypes of your parents' imagination? What exhibits debase your humanity? Then, I want you to drop your evaluation in the museum drop box as you exit. And I want you, or hit send, I'm modern museum now, hit send on the iPad screen. And I want you to send this evaluation to yourself and see if it aligns with your values. See if it aligns with your UU principles and purposes. See if it aligns with the purposes and principles of this church. If it aligns with your sources of your faith and your theological constructs. See if it does. Finally, just prior to the Civil War, Unitarian Universalist, Unitarian minister, sorry, Thomas Starkane said that Universalists believe that God is too good to damn humans, while the Unitarians believe that humans are too good to be damned. Someday, friends, someday, when our interior museum evaluations are reviewed, the monuments and statues, we will be able to say, we are too good to be damned because we remove the totems to white supremacy from the public square. Someday we might be able to say, we are too good to be damned because we erected statues to collectivists and freedom fighters like John Lewis and Harriet Tubman to 
James Reeb and Alicia Garza to Russell Means and Angela Davis, someday we might be able to say, we are too good to be damned because we built museums not to collect material culture, but to create innovative communities of mutuality. Someday we might be able to say, we are too good to be damned because we realize that the future of our faith will depend on us getting it right now or not at all. Blessed be. Amen. And don't forget to fill out your evaluations. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. Text First Univ, that's F-I-R-S-T-U-N-I-V, to 73256 to make your gift. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.